Hi, my name is Brad. Uh, if I didn't introduce myself the last time, that should cover it. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at the Ballard campus. If you are new with us, uh, welcome to you. Uh, we'll probably hand you a welcome card so we can ha- stalk you at some point. That'd be great. Uh, if you fill that out and get it back to us, we'll keep you looped on what's happening. A little bit about me. I am coming off the tail end of whatever is going around. So if I start hacking and coughing, I am sorry. I will try and cue Stephen to mute the microphone so it's not louder than it should be. Uh, but we'll have my trusty water bottle so we don't lose the voice like we did last week. Uh, these verses that Tim read were about justice. When I think of justice, the first thing that comes to my head is Law and Order, uh, the, the TV show, you know, the bong bong. Uh, it's no matter where you are at time of day, there is always a Law and Order on television. If you're homesick and you want something to watch, Law and Order's on. And it always starts out with the criminal justice system is, and then they go on to their little spiel about what law and order and justice means. When we think justice, sometimes our mind goes to that. We think of the statue in front of the courthouse, Justia, with the the blindfold and the scales and the sword, making sure everything is done and cut fair, making sure that all people are cared for. That's what usually our society thinks of when it comes to justice. Sadly, our culture, our society, when it thinks justice, does not think of our God who defines himself as justice. In Jeremiah, he says, I am the Lord, I am just, I am kind, I am compassionate. We tend to separate justice as an attribute of our God, and as one local pastor called it, make it into an agenda or a political cause. And so we ignore justice. And sadly, the church, which should be defined as justice, has been removed from a lot of the justice conversations due to indifference or due to some of the messiness that goes along with seeking justice for people. But when we look at justice, especially in scripture, What we see is a God that is defined by justice, and he holds out the invitation for us to join in with him in justice, in seeking justice for everybody. In our constant series, the series that we have three more weeks in, uh, we're spending time today about justice. We have four stops when we talk about justice. There's the creation. How was justice uh, envisioned in the beginning? And then after creation, there's always disruption when things go awry, when things mess, mess up. And then how has justice been lost? And then towards the end, of, in the middle of disruption, there's always room for hope. And it curves up, and hope is, can justice ever be restored? And then the culmination is, finally, justice can be brought, and, and justice can be experienced by all. If we look at justice in creation, we see very quickly that God needed a body of people that can display his justice to, pe- to the entire earth. Everything was broken. People were sinning. The wickedness had taken over. But it didn't change the way God thought of justice. It didn't change his attributes. His attribute of justice had always remained the same. And from the beginning, his intention was to use people to bring about that justice. And so in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham and gives him a covenant. We looked at covenant a few weeks ago. Covenant to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. 
so that you can bless everybody else, so that the world through you would be blessed. And he promises him a nation. He says, through you and your wife, we're gonna work a miracle because you guys are like 90 and 90, 90 year olds usually don't give birth very easily. You're going to have a son and that son's going to have a son. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Did any of you know that song? I am one of them and so are you, so let's all place the Lord right arm, left arm, and we march. Tim, there's your closing song. Uh, but Father Abraham had many sons, and then the sons constituted a nation. He had sons and daughters, don't worry, we're all in there. He had many children, and they constituted a nation, and the nation became known as Israel, and soon the nation found itself in the middle of exile in Egypt. And they cried out. Here they were supposed to be ones who were blessed so that they would bless other people. And, but they find themselves in Egypt and the story of Israel is they cried out to God and there's a theme that we'll begin to see throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament that God constantly hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of the people who are not being treated fairly. And what happens is God hears and he brings Israel out and begins to show them what it means that they could be part of that promise. And he calls them priests. He sets them apart and says, you will be the embodiment of my character to the entire world. And he gives them commandments to live through. He gives, says, this is what it looks like to look like me. When you look like me, you look like this. My dad used to have these talks with me. Thayers don't quit, he always used to say. When I wanted to quit something, he'd say, if you're gonna be a Thayer, you don't quit. You keep fighting, that's what it means to be a Thayer. And this is what God is saying to Israel. Israel, if you're going to look like me, these are some things that you're going to have to do. And so he gives the 10 words or the 10 commandments. And then he says, after the 10 commandments, there's a whole other list of laws. The 10 commandments worked as an outline. There's a list of laws of how we're supposed to treat people around us so that Israel can be the blessing that it was intended to be. And so in the creation of it all, in Exodus 2.25, I believe Greg has the PowerPoint machine fired up. Uh, it says this. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, he's saying treat people fairly. Don't charge absurd interest on loans. If it's gonna get cold tonight, don't hold on to their coat. Give it back to them. And then he tags on, for I will hear the cries of the oppressed. It's the same phrase. He goes on in the next slide, Greg. It says this, how to treat foreigners. Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me and I will hear their cry. And to make things clear, his anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. Things will escalate rather quickly. But what he's saying is the warning that God continually gives to Israel is that if they did any of these things, he would constantly hear the cry of the oppressed. 
Why? Because we have a God who is for justice. We have a God who wants to see all people flourish and not just have enough, but have enough that they are actually flourishing. That is God's heartbeat. In this way of of living, God is showing Israel what it means to be his. Stand up for the people who are being oppressed. Why? Because you were once foreigners in a land too. Don't forget about that. Stand up for them. Stand on their side. Take care of the orphan and the widow. The freedom that Israel experiences was to help others experience that same freedom. The grace that has been extended to Israel was given to them so that they can extend grace to the other people. God measures their faith in the way they treated the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the strangers, and the weak among them. And he wants them to begin to embody one of God's central core characters of justice to make sure that people that God knows that he cares about those people to make sure of that. He wanted his people, his priests, his representatives to take care of those people. The intention was to have a nation that looked like God. That was the creation of this. And generations went by as Israel lived into their promise. They had times where they forgot about this and and they started going off and chasing their own gods and doing as they all saw fit. But on the most side, they were living into this calling and God blessed them. And David rose to power. David, the great king, took Israel to the heights it's never seen. And generations went by and they had this peace that they had in Israel and they were able to live into this. And then one time, David's son, Solomon, took the throne and he took Israel even further. Israel became wealthy and rich and they had an army and they took care of people. And then the queen of Sheba comes into town, a foreigner, queen of Sheba who is not from Jerusalem, who is not Jewish, she's from Sheba, That's all we know about her. She comes in and she looks around and she says to Solomon in 1 Kings 10, 9, praise be to the Lord your God. Now this is somebody who doesn't know Yahweh. She's looking around and sees all the blessings and how Israel has been a light to all nations and says praise the Lord your God who has delighted you and placed you on the throne of Israel Because of your Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you a king to maintain justice and righteousness. This is what Israel was meant to be. Queen of Sheba comes in and she notices it. She sees the great blessings and Solomon, you are to maintain this justice, this call that you are to have. This is the high point. The nation can go one of two ways here. It can continue to live into its intention. It can continue to live into its call for justice and to maintain justice and righteousness. Or it can go the other way. It can use its wealth and power and influence and become indifferent. And like our outline shows, it goes creation, and then we know the story. There's always disruption. Solomon went the other way with his influence. And in uh, 1 Kings 9, here's what it says. Here's the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, terraces, 
and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hezor, Megiddo, and Gezer. There's a word for forced labor. Do we know the word for forced labor? Slavery. Slavery. The nation who was once slaves in Egypt, who was brought out of Egypt from being slaves so that they can model to the rest of the world that God cares about slaves, became slave owners. And what is Solomon building with slaves? The temple. The nation can go one of two ways and he's building a temple and he's building walls around Jerusalem. He's building military bases so that he can protect his wealth. The nation that was originally founded to be a sign of justice, to allow the world to flourish around it and point all people towards God, was building a wall to protect its massive wealth. And it was hoarding it. The nation could have gone one of two ways. It was not displaying justice. Indifference took over for Solomon. Greed took over for Solomon. And we tend to celebrate some of the things that Solomon had, but in a lot of those things, it wasn't really a good thing what Solomon was doing. In 1 Kings, it continues in verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, in case you're in the market. They also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. So Solomon was accumulating an army. He had tons of chariots, tons of horses, and then he sold them. This nation who was supposed to embody justice and treating people and standing up for the cry of the oppressed was now importing and exporting arms, and we call that an arms dealer. This nation that was supposed to be justice was now an arms dealer. Solomon was importing and exporting those things. He was an instrument of war. And in 1 Kings 11, it continues, Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. In 1 Kings 10, 14, the weight of his gold that Solomon received Yearly was 666 talents. That's a lot of cash. He's bringing in a lot of money, but do you notice the number? 666. I don't want to get all Mark of the Beast on us here. This, whenever we see a number in the Old Testament, we need to peek our minds a little bit. It always points to something. This number wasn't pointing to anything in Revelation. This number in the Jewish way of reading this was to point out that something was wrong here. Something evil was happening. We tend to look at Solomon and go, look how wise and wealthy he was. But the scriptures tell us something different, something dark, something evil. Solomon was slowly stepping away from their original intention. This was the disruption personified. 
He took Israel and made them an arms dealer. And the writers point out that this was wrong. The oppressed became the oppressor. There was this specific message that God gave them and they kept stepping away from it. And at the height of its power, Solomon took this blessing that God gave Israel to bless the world and misconstrued it for privilege. This idea that they were gonna bless, Solomon said, we're God's favorites. So they hoarded and they isolated themselves. And when you do that, you begin to step away from what God has originally intended you to be and you find yourself in this place called exile. Exile is where you get, where you experience the height of disruption. It's that place where you have gone as far as you can possibly go from what God has called you to be. You're away from it. And what happened was Israel experiences Exile. First, the Babylonians come in, or the Assyrians come in after that, and then continually they are being taken and taken out of Israel, and soon their kingdom, their temple, everything is destroyed. When you step away from what God has intended you to be, you find yourself in places of exile. And in the middle of exile is where we meet those scary books in the middle of our Bibles called the Minor Prophets. We look at them and we might flip through them in our Bibles because they say some weird things. There's this guy named Ezekiel that talks to a grave of bones. There's this guy Jonah that gets swallowed by a whale and as you read through these prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea, you see some weird stories but these prophets took the voice of God in the middle of exile. They stood up to the kings and said, what we're doing is not right. We're coming away from what God originally intended us to be. And in Amos chapter five, Amos is one of my favorite one of those prophets. He says this, Amos was a, 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 a shepherd of Tekoa. So you have this shepherd who in that society is basically nobody. And he stands in the presence of the king and he says, this is what God says to you in Amos chapter three. He says, hear the word of Is hear the word, O people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. And then verse nine of chapter three. Proclaim to the fortress of, Ash of Ashdod and to the fortress of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountain. See a great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. They store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. God brings a message through Amos and says, look what's happening in this nation. You're storing up while people go without. And whose voice does God hear the most? The voice of the oppressed. And God is hearing him later in Egypt, he calls them cows of Bashan. It's not really a nice name. Never call someone a cow. He says, you are a cow of Bashan because you trample on the needy as you eat your fill. In Amos chapter five, gets to the point and he's speaking for God and he says this, away with the noise of your songs for I will not listen to the music of your harps. The people of Israel were still offering sacrifices 
They were still worshiping in their churches. They were still going through the motions of what they were supposed to do as a nation. Yet at the same time, they were not living up to the deal that God had provided. You will be blessed so that you will bless. And so God finally has it and he says, enough with your worship songs. I can't stand them anymore. In Isaiah, he says a similar thing. And he says, he calls their temple gatherings evil assemblies. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody and don't nudge the person next to you where you've become so disappointed and angry at them that you never wanted to hear the sound of their voice anymore? You hung up the phone. You walked out of the room. You were just done. This is where God is with Israel. And I'm not gonna tell you about the times I've annoyed people, but I'll, I'll put it in the thing, I have a refrigerator in my house. We'll talk about that. It makes a loud, annoying noise. It sounds like a helicopter's taking off at some point. And it just, do, 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 over and over. And we have a small house. I can't leave and get away from it unless I go outdoors. That fridge is doing its job. It's keeping the ice cream, ice cream instead of just cream. It's, it's making things cold. It's preserving our food. But yesterday, as I'm sitting at our kitchen table, the thing is making so much noise and I'm so fed up with it that I'm willing to unplug it and stick it outside on the porch and call the recycling company. This is where God is with the people of Israel. They have become such an annoyance to him that he's ready to unplug them and set them outside and say, learn your lesson, refrigerator. Stop sounding like a helicopter in my kitchen. You're making too much noise. Sometimes it wakes me up at night. And so God does this to Israel and he sets them outside. But in the middle of their exile, in the middle of being put on a porch, we always find hope. Because with our God, it's not enough to leave us in disruption. He doesn't leave us outside just so that we can die and perish. There's always a way back. And so these prophets, though they offer doom and gloom, though they're pointing out the wrongs that's happening in society, in that culture, they also point to a way back. They point towards redemption. In the middle of disruption, we find redemption. In Amos chapter nine, verse 11, says, in that day, and he's talking about the day of the Lord, the time where things will be made right. He's pointing to a future time. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter, David's house, the line of David. I will repair its broken walls and I will restore its ruin. I will rebuild it as, as, it, was, as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and that all nations and all, all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. He's pointing to something. He's pointing to Israel coming back. He's pointing to Israel actually beginning to live in to their, their calling again. In Isaiah 40, uh, verse three, he says this, a voice is calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain shall be made low, the rough ground shall be made level, the rugged places will be made a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and all of these, these prophets start pointing to something that God is doing. 
in the middle of disruption, they have pointed out the injustices that are happening in the world and how Israel was supposed to be a light of justice, how they failed, but they also point to something or someone coming that will embody all of these justice and all of these commands and bring us out of the disruption. They were learning to hope again. They were learning to know that this is how we're supposed to live, that they're supposed to care about the justices, that they're supposed to speak up for the ones who are oppressed. And their, their hope pointed towards Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus in churches, but in this time it's really true. Their hope pointed towards Christ. And in Christ we see that Jesus, in Christ we see that he embodied everything Israel was supposed to be doing at that time. He cared for the poor. He reached out to the widow. There's the story of of the leper that, that wanted to come see Jesus and he was standing at a distance and he calls out to Jesus and Jesus comes to him and says, you're healed. But Jesus does something to the leper that no one else has ever done. He touched the leper. In Jesus, you see compassion, you see mercy, you see justice. And so John the Baptist is wondering if this is really happening, that if the culmination of all these prophets is really sitting in Christ, and so he sends his messengers. John's about to be beheaded, he's in jail. He sends his messengers, and Jesus sends back to him in Matthew 11, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Basically, Jesus is saying all of those things that Isaiah pointed at, all those things that Amos pointed at, are being fulfilled. This is what it meant to be truly Israel. Jesus begins to embody the promise to Abraham that you have been blessed so that you will then be a blessing. He continues in Matthew 24. And this is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The whole world. Israel became so insular that they they built walls to protect itself, to keep their wealth safe, to keep themselves isolated. They set themselves apart because they didn't want to be polluted by anybody else. And Jesus comes and says, this message will be for everybody. Jesus tells a, 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 a parable about throwing seeds. And he says, some lands on the rocky soil, some lands in the fertile soil, some lands amongst thorns. And he talks about the ones that land in the fertile soil and that those, those seeds will grow into a bush. And then the birds of the air from all other nations will come and have their place in that tree. Jesus is saying that he has found people and the goal of those people that follow him was to take his message to a place that will attract outsiders in. And he gives this great commission. He says, the church, you are supposed to be the light to the nations so that people can come to know who I am. Go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son. He gives us our job. We are now, if you follow Christ, considered to be a picture of what God looks like. 
We are to be agents of justice. But the question that raises is how do we model justice in this world? How do we look at justice? How do we personally define justice? And as we look to Christ, we see how to model that justice because Jesus shows us in all the things that we have in our lives, our status, our privilege, our wisdom, and our wealth aren't meant to be hoarded for ourselves, but used to bless others. We can go one or two ways like Solomon can. We are now the people of God. We can either bless or we can turn to ourselves and isolate ourselves. That's the challenge of justice. How do we step into that? Tim read a verse, Micah 6, 8. It was my dad's favorite verse. It's the one we used at his funeral. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's one of those verses that we like to stick on the bottom of our emails as signatures, right? It sounds good, it's a bumper sticker, it's a quick verse, but I think our familiarity with this verse has pulled us away from what this verse actually shows us. We read this and we stop at act justly. So we want justice. And we separate justice from something Micah was pointing to. Micah's writing this to Israel, saying this is how you will live We stop at justice, but we forget about mercy. Justice and mercy go hand to hand. As one author said, justice and mercy have to kiss or else you don't have justice. And then, in order to truly have mercy, you have to be humble. You have to remember where you've come from. And once you have this humility, you realize that all of the things you might have, that I might have, that we have together, they don't come from anything that you and I have ever done. When we're humble, we see that everything we have is a gift of God, used to bless others. And then we have mercy, because then we see people that need the same blessing we have, and then we have justice. It's not justice, mercy, humility. If you take humility and mercy from justice, you're like a politician on television right now. They go together, humility, mercy, and justice. And so when we look at our neighborhood, what do we see in our parks? We see people who don't have a place to live. And instantly we start thinking of everything we should do to right these wrongs. We think of justice. And so we were asked, there was a a friend of mine was asked to go help kick people out of the jungle or sign this petition to kick people out and move them to places and get them out of their neighborhoods. And the first thing my friend said, and I loved his response, I wish it was my own. He said, have you ever walked through a homeless camp? Do you, do you know what they're going through? Do you, have you ever talked to a person living in their RVs? We don't want them on our streets. The law says this, justice. But have we backed that out and approached them with mercy and humility? You can't have justice unless you actually talk to some of these people. Some of them, the homeless issues. Yes, there's mental illness. Uh, yes, there's drugs. 
some people have missed two paychecks and now they're out on the streets. Humility shows me that I can be very quickly right there. They don't have family around them. They're out on their luck. And because they've missed just those paychecks, they are now on the street, no job and no way out. Humility. Can we find mercy in that? Yeah, that's hard. Mercy. What's justice look like there? Justice doesn't look like what's going on in city council. I don't know if it looks like that. I don't know. I'm not speaking politics here. But how do we as a church, how do you as gathering groups approach that situation with humility, mercy, and then bring justice? What does it look like for your interactions with a homeless person? How do you talk to them? How do you interface with them with mercy, humility, and bringing justice? There's situations, and, and hear me, I am not endorsing candidates. No way. I, I don't want to get into that mess. But if we watch out for the people who are oppressed, if the goal of the church was to live in the same calling that they had for Israel, how do we approach a refugee crisis? These people are being kicked out of their lands. Some of them have no place to go. Kids being bombed, and now they're being moved out. How do we, with humility, mercy, bring justice? It's not a political issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It's not an independent issue. This is a gospel issue. How do we bring justice to this place? How do we approach conversations with them? There's issues of justice when we look at abortion. Not a political issue, it is a gospel issue. Not just for the voice of the ones being aborted, but also for the women who have to sit and go through it. I sat in a waiting room of a Planned Parenthood while we had a miscarriage. Some of the conversations that I had with family members brought a whole new light to what's happening in the procedure room. Carrie had conversations as she's waiting for her miscarriage treatment with women who were having abortions that brought a whole new light to the conversation. Humility, mercy, justice. It doesn't change, the, 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 the conversations don't change the end result. What, what's happening is, is devastating. That is not a political issue. It's a gospel issue. We've taken justice in our churches and we've separated it from God and instead of calling these issues of the homeless crisis that we see in our cities, in our neighborhood, of the refugee crises that we see in our world and even on the street corners uh, with the abortion crisis and we've taken these things, just three of them, we can name dozens and dozens and dozens more. We've taken these things and taken them and making them into political talking points instead of what they really are, a chance for you and I to be humble, to have mercy, and to bring justice. God defines himself first with compassion and mercy and justice. 
How do you and I continue to define ourselves as ones who bring mercy, compassion, and justice? How do we see the heart of God on all of these people, even when we might disagree with what they're doing, even when we probably don't like them? God hears the cry of the oppressed. How do we hear the same cry and step into that? In our neighborhoods, in our gathering groups, in your personal lives, what is the step that God is pulling you? What is that person, who is that person that keeps coming to mind that needs to see humility, mercy, and justice? Our God cares about that. Our calling is to step into that care and step into that story that God is writing, that he cares about it and wants us to do something about it. And in that way, justice becomes less of this little statue on our courtrooms holding a scale and a dagger and takes on life and blood and a heartbeat. And we become justice for people. We speak up because we can go one of two ways ourselves. Pray with me. Father, you are a God of justice. You're a God of grace. You're a God of mercy. And you're a God of compassion. These attributes that you have never change. They never go anywhere. They never do anything. They never move. They're always the same. God, but we move. We forget our calling as, a, as your people to care for these, to care for the oppressed, because we were once oppressed, to care for the widow, because we ourselves might find ourselves widowed, to care for the poor, to care for the orphans. Lord, this is our calling as Christians. And God, would you begin to illuminate ways in which we can step into that calling and begin to live out what you have so greatly designed for us. Lord, we ask for a plan to, to conquer the injustices, but you gave us a plan. You sent us. You sent your church to be that plan, and that was plan A, and there's no plan B. So Lord, help us to live into that plan. Give us eyes to see the oppressed. Give us ears to hear their cries. And give us the creativity to step into their story and bring your love and bring your wholeness and bring your flourishing. God, help us not to get wrapped up in political speak, but to help us to keep our eyes on the cross, on the gospel. It's in your name we pray.